We are in Hosea chapter 6 this morning. I hope to get through about half of that. Um, in Luke 15, we read Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And you'll remember that we have the younger son, and he demands of his father the inheritance, which he had no right to. There was no inheritance prescribed for the younger son. But this father gives to his son anyway, and he takes uh, and wastes it, as the Bible says, in riotous living, in godless living. He chooses to indulge the lust of the flesh, live in such a way that he finds himself without anything uh, feeding pigs and at the point where he's about to eat what he's feeding the pigs because that's where he's at. He has nothing. And at that moment, he remembers that even the servants in his father's house have plenty and eat well. And so he says, I'll go back to my father and I'll ask forgiveness and maybe he will let me be a servant. We all know the story that when he comes back and the father sees him at his distance, he runs out and he puts the ring on his finger and he puts the cloak on and he commands the fatted calf to be, be butchered. We're going to celebrate the return of my son. And we all look at that and we realize that in many respects, that's a picture and an illustration of our interaction with the Lord, that we are all like a prodigal uh, living in such a way that, that we are left outside of that relationship. Yet when God, when we return to the Lord, he with open arms welcomes us in. And we see this illustrated throughout scripture. And I know we've talked about it uh, over and over and over as we study through Hosea, but this is, that's what the text says. So here we are looking at this again. Israel ultimately has no interest, at least for now, in turning back to the Lord. And God highlights uh, the depravity that they've fallen into. And we'll get to that next week. But this this morning, I want to look at the first uh, few uh, verses uh, in, <clears throat> in Hosea chapter 6. Uh, first of all, let's just read uh, the first three verses, and then we'll come back and look at those in particular. He says, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. After two days, will he revive us? In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. So initially we have uh, this uh, call to turn around, to pull our head out of the sand and to see where we are. Um. This is no news, and, and, and we've seen this over and over, even though in the very beginning, God, uh, and ultimately, we know that the certainty of judgment that is coming, and he's made very clear that in the very first chapter, as he told Hosea, take the adulterous woman as a wife, and he says, name your one of your children, lo me, no mercy, right? The, the time for all of that is gone. Now you will reap what you've sown, and that's where we encounter them in this relationship at this point, and we're going to talk about that for just a little while this morning. But he says, first off, come and let us return to the Lord. Here we have Hosea pleading with the people, let us turn back to the Lord. Let's see where we're at. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God has been very clear with the nation of Israel since the very beginning of their nation, even uh, to make clear what will happen. Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, verses 36 and 39 through 39. For the Lord shall judge his people. And repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And he will say, where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. The long and short is this, God, and we've encountered this throughout the book of Hosea. The nation of Israel is stuck. The kingdom of Israel is stuck in idolatry. They were founded on it and they've continued in it. 
And God has talked about this multiple times. And he says, listen, where are the gods that you offer your sacrifices to? Where are they? How come they're not sparing you? How come they're not sympathetic to your plight? And he makes it very clear here in Deuteronomy, and not only here, but also in our chapter in Hosea, it is I, even I, the Lord, not your idols, not those false gods that you ascribe ability to, but me that is moving in your life. It is operating for your best. In Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and this is in many respects the key parallel to us individually, but not only just us, but as well to the church. That if Israel is God's example people, as we said when we introduced this book, we would expect God to deal with us, the church, his people, in a similar manner. So here in Hebrews chapter 12, in verses 10 and 11, here he is talking about fathers, the, the fathers that he has entrusted us to here on earth. And he says, listen, verily for a few days, those fathers chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, speaking of God, chastens us. He corrects us for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous nevertheless. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. God said, listen, I am the one who has torn. I am the one that will heal. I'm the one that is smitten, and I'm the one that will bind up. God has torn his people so that he might heal them, that he might bring them back to himself. That is the purpose and the intent. That's what we read about in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, listen, you are my people and I will deal with you if you don't receive my chasing. If you're not taking that, if you, not that you're not taking it. If I'm not giving it to you, it's because you're not one of mine. And he says, I give it to you because I love you. I want you to be participating recipient of the holiness. It yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness. It brings us back into a place of community, as I, if, for lack of better terms, back into I hate to say right relationship because we've talked about this. We didn't, God didn't step away from us. And we're going to talk about this this morning. But we may have stepped away from the Lord. And so he corrects us to bring us back. That's what he's doing with Israel. And so here we are. God has torn so that he can heal. In the book of Lamentations, if you'll turn there with me, Jeremiah the prophet uh, is lamenting. He's mourning, as it were, the fall and the promised fall of Jerusalem. Now, this is yet future from where we're at chronologically in Hosea. But he, in the midst of all of all his lamentation, he he draws from the truths that we're talking about this morning. Lamentations chapter three, beginning in verse thirty-one. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he com have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Here is the Lord, and he's long-suffering to usward. It does, says that he doesn't afflict willingly, that he only does it. It's sort of the last resort, as it were. That God, in his mercy and his love towards you and I, is going to do everything that he can do to bring us back to himself before he has to chasten us. Just as he did with Israel. Over and over and over, he sent prophets to them. He sent those that would take the word to, of repentance, and they were unresponsive. And he says, listen, he is not going to cast off forever. And even though he's going to cause grief, even though he's going to be the one that afflicts us, he's going to have a, a compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Jeremiah understands the corrective hand of God in relation to his people. And if we jump down to verse 39 through 41 in Lamentations 3, wherefore does a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up with our heart, our, our heart with our hands of the God in the heavens. He, he said, listen, you reap what you've sown. We have no right to complain. What we should do is give thanks. We should worship as a response to the things that God is doing in our life. That just as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, that he is not against us, but he is in fact for us, drawing us to himself, correcting us so that we might be more like him. 
It's the transformative action of sanctification. I had an opportunity to go to dinner with my uncle while I was in Spokane this last week, and we were talking about blessing. And it's an interesting thing because he's he's LDS and 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 Mormonism is quintessentially an American religion. That, that you're only that the, the amount of blessing, good stuff that we would ascribe to be good is directly proportionate to how good you are before God, your works. In other words, you can bribe God, as it were, to bless you. That I tithe, and the motivation for my tithe isn't to worship God, but to receive what I can get as a result. I go through these works, and therefore I'm somehow worthy to be blessed. It's a works mentality. And so we were talking about blessing, and we were we were talking about blessing in the context of uh, there's a there's a big homeless camp in Spokane. It's it's anyway, and so he had this interaction a couple of weeks prior with this young man from this camp, and we were talking about all of this and 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 looking at it, and it became very clear that he is uh, ascribing to this young man thoughts and motives that may or may not be accurate, that, that it may, in fact, just be something that the Lord is doing in this young man's life. And so we had that, that created an opportunity for me to discuss blessing and, and works righteousness. All of a sudden, we're having this discussion about standing before the Lord and, and, and counting everything that is happening in my life or that young man's life or your life as a result of God's sovereign hand of him operating in accordance with what he has said in his word, that he's going to chasten us, that he's going to bring about within us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And it removed a layer of interaction, and it struck him that there was something there. And then all I can say is that the truth will set you free. That's, And I'm not convinced that he... He saved or anything by any means, but there was a, he had to deal with a misbelief, confronted with the word of God. And sometimes we look at blessing in the same way, or we look at hardship, and rather than lifting our hands up to worship the Lord for what he is obviously doing in our life, though it may be hard, we tend to push it off. Well, this is hardship. This is bad stuff. Somehow I'm. we may be being punished. We may be possibly being corrected. But God clearly tells us that's because he loves us, because he is engaged in our life, because he is working. We need to accept it as the blessing of God in our life. Now, as we read through our passage here this morning, these first few verses, it should be very obvious. There's a gospel thread. Throughout the book of Hosea, there's a gospel thread, and here I find it very clearly. He says that after two days, he will revive us, and in the third day, he shall raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. And when you read about two days, and you read about three days being raised again, obviously, we think about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Now, this is ultimately simply a statement about God's ability to restore us in such a short time. That while it may have taken that prodigal son in Luke 15 weeks or months or even potentially years to squander everything that he had inherited, God, in a matter of mere moments, ultimately was able to restore him to a place of right relationship. So it's God's ability to restore in such a short time. And that should be no surprise to us. In Genesis chapter 1, we read about God's creation and how he literally spoke everything into existence, as we say, from nothing. He didn't make everything and organize existing matter and, and materials. He literally spoke everything into existence. In the, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. In the beginning, God said, let there be a heavens and an earth. In the beginning, let, there, let the earth bring forth those things that are going to creep on the earth so on and so forth. All, all of this that we experience day in and day out, all of this that we are currently sending out probes and all kinds of things into the universe to spy out and see and try and look and see if there's any evidence of whether God created or didn't create, whatever the motive behind it may be, all of that spoken into existence by God. 
And we think to ourselves, why did God take so long? He didn't have to take six days. God could have literally spoke everything in a single utterance. But he gave us the example of the Sabbath in that sixth day, and that's really the reason why he did. God took six days on account of us to provide something for us that he knew we would need. Nothing is impossible for God. For him to restore us in such a, in a short period of time is no hard task or an impossibility for him. Israel's current position, where they stand right now in the book of Hosea, is far from God. But he's going to bring them back to himself. Where Israel stands today as a nation is still far from God. And there is this time coming when God is going to restore them to himself. Turn with me to second, excuse me, Romans 11 first. Romans 11. Now there's really a lot to unpack in Romans 11. And we've been in and out of this chapter as we've studied through the book of Hosea. But in Romans chapter 11, verse 15. And here God is talking about uh, the, the Gentiles. And he's talking about Abraham or, or the seed of Abraham. He's talking about Israel. And he makes mention of Israel in verse 15. For if the casting away of them, of Israel, right, they're put off. They're over here. They're the prodigal son. They've walked away, as it were. If the putting off of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And what I want to point out here is that there is this, even in the discussion about Israel being put off, being set aside, at least temporarily, and this isn't the only place that we encountered in the book of Romans. But even if they're put off temporarily, there is this looking forward to and this promise, as it were, of being brought back to life, of being brought back into right relationship with him. And he continues this discussion using the illustration of that grafted olive branch, that we being grafted into the root and the foundation, as it were, of Israel and their right relationship, their standing as the people of God, and ultimately them being grafted back in. God has one people. We're honored to be part of that people. In 2 Corinthians, if you'll turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians 12, uh, 3, verses 12 through 18. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Now, you'll remember that Moses' face would, was glowing, and it was glowing as a result of his interaction with the Lord. And because it started to fade... In his pride, when he would come out of his tent, he would put a veil so that the people couldn't see that it was fading. It wasn't quite as luminescent as it had been previously. There was this veil, this covering between them. Now here we look at that veil and we see it illustrated. Uh, and, and not only do we find it there, but we find the veil illustrating the separation between the priesthood and the old covenant. And God's presence in the temple. It's, it's illustrating the same principle. He says in verse 14, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Now remember when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the veil in the temple tore from top to bottom, signifying that through him, through his sacrifice, the way into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God itself, is now accessible. Not by an elite few that go in once a year, bringing only sacrifices after they've made sacrifice for themselves, but for everyone. Whereby we can boldly come into the throne room of God and, and into his presence that we might receive help in time of need. That veil was done away with in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Right? Here's the nation of Israel, and they hear this, and they fight against Jesus Christ being 
verified to be the Messiah. You look at all of the things prophesied and, and, and the willing ignorance that they would hold on to that Jesus was not, in fact, the Messiah. Nevertheless, when it shall, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. There is a time coming when God is going to remove that, when there is a repentance and a turning to him as a result. Now, the Lord is that spirit where the spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty. But we, this is speaking of you and I, this is the church. But we, with open face, not covered, not veiled, not somehow separated from God, we with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, were changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Now, there are those who will take that verse, that verse 18, and they will ascribe some deification to mankind. And that's completely false. But what it does mean is that just as Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead, ultimately forever, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And we look at the promise of God to conform us into his image in Romans 8, 29. In fact, it's his predetermined plan for us in Christ to be made like Jesus. That's what this is being talked about. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, verse 21, for he has made him sin to be, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we are changed from image to image, to glory to glory, that we are now, when God looks at us, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It isn't a deification of man. It's simply a clarification of our covering and the justification, the declaring of our righteousness in Christ. But that's where we stand. We stand in this right relationship, unveiled, unseparated from God by anything, even sins that we have committed, sins that we are yet to commit. Those things don't separate us. When Israel turns back to God, he says, I will restore them. I'll remove the veil. Listen, we need to understand that you and I in Christ, there is no veil. When we turn around, God is there. We've talked about this before, and we're going to continue to talk about it because it is consistent with the gospel thread that we find in Hosea. The church is the fruit of God's mercy. That if God would put off Israel, that he would temporarily set aside this portion of his people. Now, And I realize that, that sounds harsh, but we have to trust that God is completely sovereign. Not only is he completely sovereign, but according to his foreknowledge, he knows. We don't know. Anyone that, and just because he's put Israel as a nation aside, doesn't preclude anybody from coming to faith. Right? We're, we're speaking in general terms, and so is the Bible. Any Jew at any moment could come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they would be just as saved as we are. So we, we don't want to miss that, right? When we talk about Israel being put aside, it's as a nation, as his special people. All of a sudden, they're put aside so that others may be made known. They may see, even as it were here, God is made known and he's glorified because he is the one that can allow them to go into captivity. That he would chasten his people. You don't see other gods with that ability. But the church is the fruit of God's mercy. It's the fruit of him being unwilling that any should perish. In John chapter 11, John 11, verse 25 and 26. Jesus is speaking. He says, whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And she said unto him, and oh, excuse me, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? This is it. This clarifies for you and I that our that it is by faith in Christ alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. That God is dealing with us in mercy, that he isn't saying, Listen, your righteousness, your Ability to keep the law and keep it perfectly, flawlessly, is somehow the mechanism of your salvation. 
He says, no, my, you, you, by faith in me alone. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But it's not about the works that we've committed. It is about the work that Jesus finished. By his great mercy, he has saved us. Now, the result of that for you and I is an eternal relationship with God. An eternal relationship. Not something that we can lose or something that we can discard or something that we, even if we walk away from. Even if we choose to be a prodigal. God is still there. Our relationship is eternal. And it's based upon what he has finished, not upon what I maintain. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, I chose this verse because I think it illustrates for you and I something that, that we may overlook. Right? That here we are, and we somehow ascribe our relationship with the Lord to, 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 in need of maintenance. That makes sense. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue the Lord, that we shouldn't seek to honor him and how we live and conduct ourselves. We've talked about that to great length. But here is the statement about we're always confident that knowing that while we are home in the body, while I'm in this body, I am absent from the Lord. But the converse is also true for the believer, that if I am absent from this body, whether I would deem my relationship with the Lord to be right and whole and on good, stable ground, or I deem it to be shaky and wavering, it doesn't change the truth. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The point is this, my relationship, your relationship is not based upon our walk. The eternity of that relationship is based upon what God has done. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. The difference between Christianity and any other religion is do and done. All other religions have a bunch of do's. Whereas Christianity says it's done. Like I said, this doesn't, this wouldn't for you and I as believers. It shouldn't remove from us some kind of a motive to seek to serve the Lord. But what it should for us is motivate us. It should be that confirmation of God's love and concern for us. Like we read in Ephesians chapter 2, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That's when he extended his mercy to us, not when we had somehow cleaned ourselves up. No, here it is. The eternal relationship that we experience with God is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now, ultimately, we're, we're talking about the, those being caught up. We're, we're talking about those things here. It says, but for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. 
Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, here's what I want you to take away from this. This, this verse 18, comfort one another with these words. We talk about this, and this is commonly expressed at funerals and those kinds of things. And it's true, and it's something that we probably should do. But the reason that it's comforting is the same then in those circumstances is the same reason that it's comforting for you and I now. That whether we're alive or dead, period, those are the only two states that you can be in. Would you agree? You can only be alive or dead. You can't be sort of dead or sort of alive. You can't be mostly dead. <laughs> only in the movies and only in one movie. Right, you're dead or you're alive. But ultimately, the truth behind this is this: that whether I'm dead or alive, I am Christ's. And like we read in Second Corinthians, if I'm dead before Christ's return, then the promise that I have, the assurance and the confidence that I have, that you can have, is that I'm in His presence. And if I live until Christ's return, the assurance and the confidence that we have is that we go with Him. We are his, period. And it doesn't matter where we stand. It doesn't matter what, how we might deem that relationship, what condition it may be in. Here's Israel. They're far from God. They are separated from God. Their heart is far from him, even to this day. But there's a time coming when God promises that they will turn to him. And when they turn to him, what does he say? I'll remove the veil. I will be their God and they'll be my people. It's an instantaneous thing that happens in their hearts and minds, an instantaneous thing that happens on God's part where they're born again. They're saved. You and I are already born again. We're already saved. The reality is that God didn't remove himself from us. There's a great confidence in our relationship with the Lord. It's not something that is lost. Just like that prodigal son, when we come back, there's a celebration. In Hosea chapter 2, turn back to Hosea with me. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. We have this promise of God to the nation of Israel, to his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, to his people. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Now, we remember that early on, we're using the example of Hosea and Gomer, this adulterous woman that he was commanded by God to marry. And so sticking with that marriage illustration, he says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Now, this is true for you and I at this very moment if we know Christ. And there's a promise and a looking forward to of the nation of Israel being in that same right relationship with God. He says in Hosea chapter 6, verse 3, now, as I said, right, just because we understand that the relationship that we have with God is sure and stable and unchanging, yet it's based upon what Jesus has done, doesn't mean that we don't have some desire and, dare I say, obligation to serve him. And he addresses that in this next verse. And it's consistent with what we find in the scripture. It's consistent with what we find in the gospel. He says in verse 3, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. Now that phrase simply means that we know the Lord and we continue to grow in that knowledge. That's what it means. Right? So we're going to know God and we're going to continue to seek after. We're going to continue to seek to know him more. In Proverbs chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2, the first five, six verses here, it says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. And so there's, there's a statement here right this is if you continue to pursue and i want you to read as we read this i want you to understand that there's this description of pursuit is something that is being sought after if we can if we know the lord and continue to 
to keep on pursuing the knowledge of the Lord. That's what we're talking about. And that's what's being described here. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, verse four, if thou seekest as her as silver and search for her as hid treasures. Right, there's some effort indicated here, right? It's not something that we're just finding laying on the ground. We're digging deep. Then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. What is the end result? Understanding about the fear of the Lord and the finding of the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. And out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. That's what God promises those who will seek after him. Who will seek truth. He promises to be found of them. In Philippians chapter 3, this is unchanged for you and I as believers. This isn't something that is promised simply in the Old Testament. No, this should be our experience as believers. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Paul is here talking about his pursuit of God his desire to serve, his desire to know him. And he says, not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect. But I follow after that if I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ. Right, I continue in that which God has called me to. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, there's two things that I want to highlight here, right? He's not remembering. He's Paul is not resting on his laurels of service in the past. There isn't some, I did good in the past, I get to hang it up today. We don't require re, retire from being disciples of the Lord. We serve him always. Now, the nature of that service might change. We talked about last week in Sunday school. We, we looked at uh, John, uh, Charles Wesley, excuse me, one of the Wesleys, and how he endured and, and God preserved him physically so that he might continue in service. And, and we use it as an illustration, right, that God might. Now, we understand as well that the Bible clearly says this is our tabernacle it's just a tent we our permanent body what we live in currently is going to break down right i mean we're we're not going to be as good at the things that we are today we're not going to be able to do some of the things we can't we we very likely may not be able to maintain the same level of service but it doesn't mean that we're not of use and it doesn't mean that god hasn't some other plan that we might serve him in i mean i read through titus chapter 2 and i see some potential output of service for the Lord, for those who might be infirm. They can have a long conversation with somebody about how they might serve the Lord and encourage them. It didn't really take any physical effort. Just because we, we age, just because we change, just because our circumstance is different doesn't somehow give us the ability to rest on things that we've done in the past. And Paul talks about that. But secondly, past failures don't define who we are. The sins that we may commit, those things that we may have hung up on, those stumblings that we may have had, don't define where we are today. I talk about, uh, you know, if you, if you pick up a Bible reading plan and you're going to read through the Bible in a whatever period of time it is, and you miss a day, don't give up. Just start later that day or the same day. You're not quote unquote behind, and nor do we just give up because we missed a day. And it's the same in our walk with the Lord. I may stumble today. I may have a hang-up right now, but that doesn't mean that I can't move forward, that, I, that I'm of uselessness to the Lord as a result. So Paul's not waiting on any of those things. Those things that are behind him, he forgets those things, and he looks forward to what God has called him to now, and he operates in that. So let's continue on. He says in verse 14, I pray, 15, let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. If in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. In other words, we continue to press forward, but not forgetful of the lessons that we may have learned along the way. Not forgetful of the faithfulness that God has shown along the way. 
there are some things that we do hold on to, and though they become key in our character and development as his servants. In Colossians chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8. We have some insight by Paul, and he says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? It wasn't by works. It wasn't by somehow earning. We received him by faith. How are we continued to walk? We should continue to walk by faith. He says, rooted in verse 7, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We continue to follow on. We continue to pursue the Lord and to know him more and more. We're going to begin in faith. We're going to continue in faith. We're going to build upon that same foundation. And we're going to do so with thanksgiving, with worship, with praise and adoration of what God has done. And we're going to be watchful that we're not deceived. The idea that we're not deceived comes with the inherent implication that we're understanding what the reality is, what truth is. 2 Timothy 2.15, right? Approved workmen. They don't need to be ashamed because they're rightly dividing the word. The knowledge of God is not a dead-end street. And I want to just, that, that's the point here. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more we find that it is an inexhaustible subject of study, that there is more to know about the Lord, that there is more to uncover and to apply within his word than there was yesterday. It isn't as if at some point in our life we'll reach a plateau where there is nowhere else to go. We've hit a dead end in our development as believers. That'll never be true. In this life, there is always more. The longer we walk with the Lord and the more we can commune in his word, the more we realize that there is more to pursue. That will always be true. He continues on in that third verse in Hosea chapter six. We continue to follow on to know the Lord. We continue in our pursuit of him. It says his going forth is prepared as the more is it prepared as the morning. In other words, it's certain as the rising sun. It will always happen. His going forth, his movement, his actions, the will of God will always be accomplished. In Philippians 1 6. I'll just turn there and read it to you. Philippians 1, 6. Being confident in this very thing that we, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That here is God who's going forth. His movement in our life is certain, is guaranteed. And that he that has started something in you through salvation by bringing us to faith in Jesus Christ will continue to develop that, continue to bring it to fruition. Here we see it in the nation of Israel. We see it in that kingdom where they have fallen away and God is correcting them. Even that being part of his plan to bring about in us completion, that total forming of the image of, of Christ. In Romans 8, 29, it says that whom he did foreknow, he predestined that they might be conformed into the image of his son. But the plan of God for you and I, his will is it would be molded into the image of Christ. This is a certainty, and it's as certain as the sun rising. Until God says, listen, the sun shall not rise, it will continue to rise. And it will continue to proceed across the sky with only one exception that we read about in Scripture when Joshua was in that battle and they paused the sun so they'd have longer to fight. But the sun always comes up. We watched the movie not too long ago, an old movie from back when I was younger. I'm pretty sure it was this movie. We watched Babe. You guys ever seen Babe the pig? You know, herds the... And the, the rooster, is it the rooster in that one? Pretty sure it's the rooster in Babe. Oh, it's in Peter Rabbit. It's in Peter Rabbit. 
right? And he's like, listen, if we don't crow, the sun will not come up. And then he like, when, when the sun comes up and he's missed crowing, he loses all purpose and he's distraught and woe is me. And he just like lays on the top rail. And you guys were, he, it was funny. And then there's the sprinklers and they, you know, so now, now they have purpose again. Listen, the sun's coming up, whether or not the rooster crows, the sun's coming up, whether or not we get out of bed. It is a certainty. It is a guarantee that the sun will come up and set every single day until God says it will not come up. Because it's not based upon what we're doing. Our conformity to the image of Christ, his faithfulness, what he has begun, he is faithful to bring to fruition, to bring to completion. Now, we've talked about this. We can work with that or we can work against that. But ultimately, he's the one bringing it to pass. He also talks about the rain. He says, his going forth is prepared as the morning. He shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain under the earth. Now, we live in an area where irrigation is the rule. Right? We, we water our fields. We water them all the time. If we counted on the rain, we probably wouldn't have any crop whatsoever or very little. But the idea here is that we have the rain early, the former rain. That's what happened early. And that gets the crop up. That gets it going. That gets it started. And ultimately, it takes both the former and the latter rain, the rain later, to bring the crop to fruition. That's what's being described here. And it says that God is faithful. He is, in fact, going to be the one as faithful as the sun. And he's going to bring the rain, the former and the latter. He's going to bring to fruition all that he started. In Hosea chapter 14, verse 5, I don't normally jump ahead in the book that we haven't studied that section. I'll jump back. But this was apt. This is what it says. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. When we talk about this, we understand that God is illustrating his action and his interaction with us through rain. That God himself is the one moving. That he himself is the one bringing about the fruit within you and within me. In 2 Peter 3.9, God is not slack concerning his promises. Now, he's not willing that any should perish, but I wanted to just stop there and take that and understand that God is not slack concerning his promises. He's not forgetful. He's not somehow lazy and not going to deliver on what he's promised. If he has started to work in us, he's going to finish it. He's going to bring it to completion. And sometimes when we have, I'm in the middle of a vehicle project, and I'm not a great mechanic, I'm really slow. I'll usually get there, and we'll get it fixed, and it'll be good after I'm done. But I'm going to have to keep at it. I'm going to have to keep tinkering away. I'm going to have to keep overcoming obstacles and doing whatever is necessary to get this thing fixed. And we will, convinced of that. Or we're all scrapping, one of the two. <laughs> but God is consistently engaged in that. He's not slack concerning his promises. I didn't want to go out yesterday. It was cold. I laid on the cold floor. My hands got cold and I quit. When my hands got cold, I went back in and warmed up. And then I went back out, right? God doesn't give up in the middle of the process. He doesn't, his hands don't get cold. It doesn't matter what the conditions may be. He's there and engaged. And he's doing everything necessary in the beginning of our faith, all throughout our walk with him, and in this life, and ultimately to the end of our life, to bring about fruit within us. To help us to be those that he has called us to be, to live in the purpose that he has called us for, Ephesians 2.10, being his workmanship. Operating in the plans and the purpose that he has for you and me individually. Being that person or that individual or that group of people that he has put on a candle stand so that we might give light to those that we are surrounded by. Matthew chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 12, I just want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 12, as we close this morning, we're going to pick up, and there's, there's a lot more to unpack in this chapter, but Hebrews chapter 12, by way of exhortation, by way of uh, something to mull over and meditate on, something to 
look back and see. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. We know that God is faithful. We know that he is trustworthy. We have the witness of scripture. We have the witness throughout our own lives of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness, his engagement with us, no matter where we stand in this life. And he says, and we have this exhortation to put off those things that would encumber us, that would bind us up, that would stop us from our pursuit of him. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Let us pursue to know God and to continue that pursuit to know him. And we look unto Jesus, the author, the initiator, and the finisher of our faith. Not only is the example, but is the one that is working and moving within us. And we consider him so that we are not wearied and faint in our minds. Because there's going to be times in our life, whether it's our own result or it's just the effects of sin that we live in. It's going to be hard. Jesus said, listen, I'm going to tell you all about the persecutions and the hardships and those things that you may encounter as my disciples so that when they come, you're not stumbled by them. Because what we find promised isn't pie in the sky and no flat tires and all the good stuff. What we find promised is hardship and trials and tribulations. That doesn't mean that we don't have good stuff and high in the sky and doesn't mean that God is withholding those things from us. But what it does mean is that we need to recognize all of it is his engagement and the blessing that he has extended to, what he, to us. Whether we would perceive it as good or whether we would perceive it as something hard. It might just be God moving on all fronts. And more often than not, almost certainly it is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. And Father, I pray that as we continue on in our study through Hosea in, in chapter 6, Lord, that you would continue to give us insight into our relationship with you. Lord, that we would see the certainty of our salvation. We would see the faithfulness of your hand engaged in our lives on, on every front. Everything that happens, Lord, you are sovereignly and providentially bringing to pass that you might be made known that we might be conformed to your image, Lord, that we might be witnesses for you. Help us, Lord, to be stewards of all you've entrusted us with. And Lord, as we have opportunity now to sing and to praise you for who you are and all that you've done, God, I pray that it would be as a result of the certainty of your faithfulness, or that we would worship you in response to all that you've done. We ask it now and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.